Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I'm your host, Christine Wirth, and I am so, so, so glad you're here. Today, what we're going to talk about is one of the craziest bank heists, I guess, uh, con jobs maybe, that I have ever read about. Now, I don't know that the word heist is exactly the correct term because it, you know, brings to mind, or at least it does for me, guns, you know, people in masks, they're running into a bank, like a holdup, or maybe even something like uh, Ocean's Eleven. So let's just call this one a socially engineered heist. This is the story of Edward Reiners and John Rufo. Now, as a special bonus, you'll find out how to potentially claim up to $25,000 from the U.S. Marshals if you happen to have information that leads to the capture of John Rufo. So let's get started. The year is 1993, and Edward Reiners, we'll just call him Edward, pays a visit to his friend and business contact, Richard Nelson. Now, Richard is the president and CEO of Nelco Limited. And what they do is they're a computer leasing company. Now, Edward and Richard, this is not an unusual meeting. They've known each other for the past 10 years. Richard's company, Nelco, has done business with the Philip Morris company. And that's important because that's who Edward used to work for. So it wasn't unusual for Edward to visit Richard. However, what Richard doesn't know is that at the time of this visit, Edward does not work for Philip Morris any longer. He left the company a year earlier in 1992. So why is Edward there? Well, Edward sits down and he tells Richard, he's like, hey, I'm on this top secret project that I'm working on for Philip Morris. It's called Project Star. And he, Edward, has just been named COO of this new Philip Morris subsidiary called Worldwide Regional Exports. This new project would involve millions of dollars in computer equipment, and Edward wanted to work with Richard on this new project. He also tells Richard that, hey, in order to get this project moving, he needs to have Richard's company, Nelco, arrange financing for the project. Now, Nelco has a great reputation with the banks, and based on their history of working working together, Richard and, and Edward, they've known each other, remember, for a while, um, this wasn't a really strange request. Richard's company, Nelco, how this would work is that they would get a cash payment of up to 2% of the size of the loan for the computers, and they would also later be involved in profits that came from selling the computer equipment once Philip Morris and quote-unquote Project Star were done with them. Before Richard went to the bank, though, Edward had some things that he had to have him do. He had to have him sign a document, and this document actually was on Philip Morris' letterhead, and it was already signed by Philip Morris's assistant corporate secretary, Diane McAdams. And like I said, it had the official Philip Morris seal. So Edward, he says to Richard, hey, don't say a word about this and had him sign this confidentiality agreement. So again, 
Since Edward and Richard have worked together for over the past 10 years, he didn't have any issues signing this document. So once it was signed, Edward made it clear to Richard that he, Edward, is the only one that Richard could contact about the project. Now, you would think that at this point there would be some red flags going up, but no, not not quite yet. When questions did come up, Richard wasn't even supposed to contact the banks or Philip Morris. Edward was to be his one and only contact. And the reason for this was that there's this huge fear that this brand new Philip Morris project would be compromised. Edward even went so far as to tell Richard that, hey, you're going to hear that I'm not with Philip Morris any longer. This is not true. I'm heading this secret project. Philip Morris would disavow any knowledge of the program if the company ever caught wind that someone was inquiring about this project. Now that's convenient, right? Richard then went ahead and called one of his contacts, Connie Mooney, who was a senior vice president at Signet Bank. He explained to Connie about the project as generally as he could without giving away any, you know, secrets or anything. And then he asked her if he could have a face-to-face meeting to arrange financing. So Richard and Edward, they then gather up and they meet with a group of bankers from Signet at Signet's headquarters in downtown Richmond, Virginia. Now, Edward, he introduces himself as the COO of this Philip Morris subsidiary called Worldwide Regional Exports. He told them the loan was to finance a top secret research and development project that focused on creating quote unquote cigarette alternatives. The computer equipment was going to be used to test nicotine levels in cigarettes. The research would then be used in litigation about addiction. And again, he further mentioned that if anyone found out about the results of these tests, it could increase Philip Morris's liability. He said that Project Star was so vital to Philip Morris that the company was taking extraordinary steps to prevent leaks. So all the work, how this would work is all the work would be conducted offshore in five smaller research and testing centers that would be scattered around the world in order to avoid detection. IBM was also involved. Now, kind of. IBM, it was said by Edward, they would produce and ship the computers, but they would do this without serial numbers. Remember, it's a very secret project. Philip Morris's research centers, they wouldn't even have an operating name and Project Star employees, they wouldn't even know who their employer was. Just as he did with Richard, Edward required all of those bankers, they're in this meeting, all these bankers, to also sign a confidentiality agreement. Signet felt that, hey, due to the tight relationship with the city of Richmond, because this is where Philip Morris was headquartered at the time, that it would have been, quote, banking suicide to turn down this loan. Now, the requested loan was for $61 million dollars. The problem was that Signet had a cap of $50 million for any one client. But of course, it's Philip Morris and, you know, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. So they went ahead and they increased it to $61 million and they didn't even ask for any kind of collateral for the money because of the good financial name of Philip Morris. Now, I know I laugh, 
but uh, it's probably because I know how this ends up. So it's you'll understand here in just a little bit. Now, Signet couldn't finance the entire amount of money, the entire loan that um, they were asking for. Uh, but what they could do is they could, Signet could syndicate the loan. So in other words, they could bring in other banks into the deal. And this helped Signet because they knew that it would put their name on the map as being a loan syndicator. And this would likely lead to other big deals further down the road. Plus, Signet felt this project just made sense. The tobacco company at the time was being hammered from literally every direction from several states who had already filed lawsuits against the company. And Signet had dealt with Edward and Richard before, so the bank felt comfortable. Edward also told the bank that yet another company, CCS Incorporated, which is run by John Rufo, was also involved in the project. And this helped to solidify the loan even further. CCS, the company owned by John Rufo, it's a New York-based computer purchasing firm that had previously done work for Philip Morris and Nelco in the past. The company, what they did is they specialized in buying computers for leasing transactions. So let's just take a minute here and step back and catch our breath because I know that there's a lot going on. So first we have Edward. Edward is the one who kind of started this whole thing. He has worked for Philip Morris for around 20 years. For the last 10 of these years, he's been involved with the computer side of things for the company. And this is how he got to know Richard of Nelco. Now, remember, this is 1993. In 1992, the year before, Edward actually stopped working for Philip Morris. So at this point, he's not working for Philip Morris any longer. And John Rufo who is the owner of CCS, um, is also obviously involved, but everybody knows each other in this whole scenario and they've all worked together in the past. So there's really no red flags going up with anybody anywhere. This sounds completely legit. Nobody's worried. Um, all of the, the banks knew that, you know, Nelco and CCS and Philip Morris, they're all stand up organizations. They had great financial reputations, So Signet was happy to hand over this $61 million for this secret project called Project Star. Now, from 1993 to 1995, now literally this is two years of this going on, Signet ended up providing $81 million for the project in total. Signet also brought in other banks into the deal, which generated around another $243 million. In addition, what was happening is that Edward, remember the previous Philip Morris employee that started this whole thing, he's making interest payments on the loans, which made the banks happy and convinced the banks that the project was up and running. All of the loans were made in the name of Nelco. And Signet, what Signet did is they gave Nelco a revolving line of credit. So in other words, Nelco could just take money out whenever they needed it, and they could then wire it to John Rufo's company, CCS, who would then purchase the IBM computers and then ship them off to the Philip Morris subsidiaries' worldwide regional exports. Now, how Edward was covering his costs 
and making payments on these loans is that as soon as he'd get money from one bank, he would use that and start paying off some earlier bank loans. This helped to give him some great references. And if he did a credit check on how all the payments were coming along, it'd look awesome. It wasn't until March of 1996 that one of the banks participating, Long-Term Credit Bank of Japan, they had a manager at their New York office get a little nervous. So this manager decided to call a executive vice president at Nations Bank. And this manager says, um, hey, I'd like to know more about this loan documentation that Edward has or had given you. This manager had questions about how the document actually gave Edward the authority to enter into contracts and conduct business on behalf of Philip Morris. You know, this is a great question. In order to calm the manager down, the certificate was then faxed to him at Long-Term Credit Bank of Japan. He then turned around and faxed it to Miss McAdams at Philip Morris. Now, if you remember this whole documentation that Edward had started to hand off and say, hey, you have to sign this confidentiality agreement. It was on the Philip Morris letterhead, remember? And it was signed by the corporate executive secretary, Diane McAdams. Once Diane actually received this, she immediately called the manager at Long-Term Credit Bank and said, this is a phony certificate. She further said, Edward Reiners is not an elected officer of Philip Morris. I do not know him, Mr. Edward Reiners, and the signature on this certificate is not mine. Now, at this point, I mean, wouldn't your heart just skip a beat? I mean, oh my gosh. Now, as a side note, this statement from Diane McAdams, it kind of makes me pause a little bit because um, I had read that Edward and John, so John Rufo and Edward, the guy who started all of this, had earlier come up with a scheme in order to get Diane's personal signature because they knew that they, you know, probably wouldn't do well forging it. So Edward and John evidently were riding in a taxi one day and they heard on the radio an announcer saying, hey, we're going to give a prize to a certain number caller. So what this did is this gave them an idea. One of the men posted as an employee of a radio station and called Diane McAdams saying that she had won a free dinner at an exclusive Manhattan restaurant. She believed them and agreed to sign a release form and then send it back to them. Now, once she did that, they had their signature. What this bank manager did then is he turned around and he called Nations Bank and said, hey, Nations Bank, I just found out that this signature on this document for all of these loans from Philip Morris or for Philip Morris, it's not real. Nations Bank then turned around and they called Signet. The next phone call was from Signet to the FBI. So on Saturday, this is like literally the Saturday after the phone call to the FBI, the FBI conducted interviews with bankers at both Nations Bank and Signet. On that same Saturday night, Richard of Nelco, he received a phone call at home at around five o'clock on a Saturday, 5 p.m. Can you imagine someone from your bank calling you on a Saturday? I mean, you had to be about ready to faint, right? 
The banker let him know about this document and what had happened. The FBI then showed up at Richard's house to interview him that same night. Now, lo and behold, <laughs> during this interview, guess who calls? Edward. Edward has caught wind of what was going down and he wanted to nip it in the bud before it got too out of hand. So what Richard did is he, the FBI guy, is still at Richard's house. He put Edward on speakerphone so that the FBI could listen into their conversation. During the conversation, Edward said to Richard, hey, I'm going to send a fax to Nations Bank and it's going to be from Diane McAdams and it's going to explain why she had said before that the document wasn't real. As promised, this fax, fax actually did arrive at Nations Bank at 11.35 p.m. It was that same Saturday. Now, on the fax, here's what it said, quote, On March 15th, I was contacted by Long-Term Credit Bank of Japan regarding the validity of the incumbency certificate referencing Mr. Edward Reiner's. I was not in possession of a confidentiality agreement executed with Long-Term Credit Bank, and therefore I responded in order to protect the confidentiality and high level of security surrounding Project STAR. For your records, the incumbency certificate authorizing Mr. Edward J. Reiners as Chief Operations Officer for Project STAR is valid and was signed by me. It was signed sincerely, Diane McAdams. The facts, however, as you might imagine, was not from Diane McAdams. So the following Monday, senior credit manager of Signet Bank, the senior credit manager, held a meeting with all of his colleagues and told him, quote, and told them, we have a major problem. The Nelco deal is a fraud. I mean, I highly doubt that that's exactly what he said, but this is what was reported. So the same day, that same day, an agent with the FBI, James Glenn, what he did is he interviewed Diane McAdams at her office. When the FBI got to her office, she told them the exact same thing she had told the bankers. It was a fake document. It was not her signature. In the meantime, Edward called Richard again and said he wanted to arrange a meeting with officials from Signet and Nations Bank. And, and he wanted to do this at the Philip Morris offices. So Edward, by this point, has just got to be, you know, crap in his pants, right? I mean, I don't know how else to put this, but he's trying to just, oh my gosh, it's falling apart. It's falling apart. How can I fix this? So, and at first I thought, well, how in the world is he going to get into the Philip Morris offices? He doesn't work for them anymore. During this phone call, Edward also said that Diane McAdams would also be there and that they would have two new pieces of documentations for the banks, one for each bank. So that Tuesday, Edward and a woman traveled to the Philip Morris offices and they were led in the door by a company employee. The woman traveling with Edward was a woman by the name of Jody, and who she was was she was an employee of CCS, who, if you remember, is the company owned by John Rufo. John Rufo had approached Jody. Remember, she's his employee, 
and wanted her to pose as Diane McAdams and validate the document at the Philip Morris offices. Both Edward and John taught Jody how to get business cards and a false ID in the name of Diane McAdams. Jody even practiced forging the name of Diane McAdams. Now, once everybody's there, they're all standing at Philip Morris headquarters. Jody identifies herself as Diane McAdams. It's like, hey, I'm Diane McAdams. Nobody has ever met her to their knowledge, so they didn't know any better. What no one knew, however, was that this entire meeting was being monitored by the FBI. Now, moments after Jody identified herself as Diane, the FBI got on the phone and they called the real Miss McAdams to verify that, hey, you're not standing here with Edward at the Philip Morris offices, are you? And she said, no, obviously. So the FBI stormed in. They arrested Jody and Edward on federal bank fraud charges. Edward had a, this is how he got into Philip Morris. Edward had a photo ID card from Philip Morris and so did Jody. Jody's ID card had the name Diane McAdams on it. By the time everything was all said and done, and the FBI has gone through their whole entire process. Seven banks from the United States, Canada, Japan, and Austria had all been duped into handing out millions of dollars worth of loans. So let's talk about Jody here for a minute because poor Jody, she's just this employee. She is a divorced mother of a six year old son. And at this point in her life, she makes maybe $30,000 a year as a secretary at CCS. Court records show that she was lured into posing as Diane McAdams, and she actually did not believe that she was committing a crime. Her attorney said she was under the impression from her boss, John Rufo, that they were involved in Operation Star, not Project Star, Operation Star, a government project. She was told that they needed to get out a document to protect the integrity and secrecy of the project and that they needed her to sign a document. And then she got arrested. Now, Jody is freed on a $40,000 bond. Mr. Rufo's attorney also said that John was duped, just like everybody else. He was led, quote, he was led to believe that he was working on a joint Philip Morris government project to be funded with the government's authorization and knowledge through phantom sale leaseback transactions guaranteed through Philip Morris. None of that was true, but my client believed it to be true because Mr. Reiners victimized him. Now, as of this date, which is March 19th, 1996, Edward and Jody so far are the only people who have been charged in this case. On March 24th, 1996, just days after all this happened, Richard's company, Nelco, had to file bankruptcy. The company actually listed $189 million in assets and $166.2 million in liabilities with about 1,700 creditors. Signet Bank, they faced a multi-million dollar lawsuit and they had not recovered their $81 million. In April of 1996, and this is just a month later, it's suspected that the government will eventually drop charges against Jody. 
She has resigned her position from CCS because, quote, she's uncomfortable working there. (laughs) Who could go figure? And now she needs a new job to support her child. The FBI did say that some 200 million of the 323.5 million in these bank loans have been found and they've been found in John Rufo's company, CCS's accounts. But his lawyer says, Hey, he, he too is a victim and Edward Reiner's duped him. And, you know, please feel sorry for him. His lawyer also said there are some vital national security issues relating to Mr. Rufo's prior involvement with covert government operations. As of April 7th, 1996, John Rufo of CCS, he has not been charged. Later in April of 96, he is charged and his bail is set at $10 million because he's considered a flight risk. Now, since most of his money was frozen by the FBI, His family put up all the collateral they could, including their homes, to secure his release, which was granted. Six separate family members agreed to do this for him. In September of 96, federal charges are actually dropped against Jody. So what happened to the money? Well, by this time, authorities knew that obviously Project Star never existed, nor did uh, Philip Morris have any other top secret program in the works involving Edward Reiner's um, to date. And remember, this is in 1996. There's no evidence that any computer equipment was ever purchased. So where did all this money go? Well, according to a hearing on June 11th and It was a Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act hearing. Edward used used most of the money to play the stock market, and then he used some of it to buy expensive properties, including a condo at the Trump Tower in New York. So when the scheme came to light in 1996, the government used the asset forfeiture laws to freeze all of these assets before Edward could transfer them overseas. So 225 million of that was recovered and it was to be turned over to the victim banks within the next few weeks. Now, of these stocks uh, that were controlled by Edward and John, the president of CCS, um, (laughs) ironically, one of the stocks they invested in was Philip Morris. Now, what happened is the Trump condo that Edward purchased uh, he bought it for $9.4 million. That was seized as well. So the government has, or all of the banks have, recouped most of their money at this point in time. Now, in April of 1998, now this is just days before John Rufo's trial, he does plead guilty to all 160 counts of conspiracy, bank fraud, money laundering, wire fraud, mail fraud, and Six months later, in September of 98, he was actually sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison. Upon sentencing, officials began to place handcuffs on John and lead him away. But his attorney says, hey, no, 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 no. Stop with this. The prosecutor had agreed to a deal where John would be able to self-surrender. The judge couldn't believe it. And they asked the prosecutor if it was true. Prosecutor said, yeah, and they had to take off the handcuffs and John headed back to New York. So John's schedule is he is required to self-surrender on November 9th of 1998. 
On May 21st of 98, Edward Reiners also pleads guilty, but he pleads guilty to one count of bank fraud and one count of money laundering, and he receives a 202-month sentence. Prosecutors say that there's $13 million of this loan money that still has not been recovered. Edward is claiming he has no idea where this money is. So here's November 9th. This is the day that John is set to turn himself over to the U.S. Marshals Service to begin serving his sentence. He never shows up. No surprise, right? He dropped, what he did is he dropped his wife off at a train station and John was later captured on an ATM camera appearing to withdraw money. His wife received a phone call from the FBI later in the day saying, where is John Rufo? You know, she kind of wants to know this too. When she got home, She found a suicide note, but neither she nor the FBI really believed it was a real suicide note. His car was found abandoned in long-term parking at JFK Airport. So three months after his disappearance, so he doesn't show up. You know, of course, everybody put up their collateral, right? And so John could get out and have some time before he had to go to jail. Three months after he disappeared, the homes of his wife his mother, his mother-in-law, and other family members were all seized by the government as a forfeiture of bond collateral, effectively making them all homeless. Now, many of these family members, good Lord, they were in their 70s and 80s. Even this many years later, there has still been no capture of John Rufo. Um, There's been plenty of sightings, but obviously he's still on the run. He's not a tall guy. He's actually, unfortunately, he has a very everyman look to him. So it's not like he's going to stand out in a crowd. He is, he's heavy set. There is one interesting thing about him, though, is that he has an unusual shoe size. He wears an eight triple E. So any shoes of this side would typically need to be custom ordered or custom made. He's five foot six, not a tall guy. He has brown eyes and brown and balding hair. Um, Of course, by this time, he could be completely bald. He could be wearing a wig. Who knows? He's known to have a mustache and wears thick framed glasses. So as of this recording, obviously, John Rufo has not been found. The U.S. Marshals want him. They are offering a $25,000 reward. Uh, He goes by various names. So the names of John Russo. Jack Nitz, Bruce Gregory, John Peters, and Charles Sanders. So if any of those sound familiar to you, you might want to uh, double check that that friend that you have. Um, Also, Hulu, they have a series on this case called Have You Seen This Man? I highly suggest that you, you take a look at it. It's very, very interesting. So that's it for this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can catch all of the sources used for this podcast at our website at beachhouse34.com or on our Instagram page, which will have a link to all of the sources at beachhouse34podcast. So thank you again for listening. We'll talk soon.